Hello, everyone, and welcome to the State of Sport Management, a podcast with Dr. Matthew Hummel coming from the University of Cincinnati in Cincinnati, Ohio. Here's this week's episode. And we're back here with State of Sport Management. We have a new episode coming in with Natalie Smith here at East Tennessee State University. I know things, um, I should say before we get started, I know things have been a little sparse here in the summer. Obviously, there's, as you can imagine, a lot going on, but also kind of the challenge of making all this work without having any technology that's available on campus. So I'm going to do the best I can, hopefully in the fall. Um, things will be a little bit smoother as we kind of continue to get used to having the technology I have here at home and um, also a lot of faculty that are out there that I'm looking to talk to will get a little bit more settled in then we can kind of have conversation from there. But today I thought it was really important. Natalie and I talked before about doing a conversation on topics related to innovation, creativity as a faculty member, as it relates to sport management. So I think now is a great time as we're all kind of sitting out and trying to come up with ways that are going to make our material more creative or more innovative to connect with our students. But um, before all that, I always, whenever I see Natalie, Natalie's a good friend of mine, I always call her still my NASA president because she was NASA <laughs> student president when I was on the board. So she'll always be that. And then my other point is Natalie's a person that I think of when I think of Leslie Nope. She is the closest I can think of. So before I even did this last night, I watched five or six episodes of Parks and Recreation to prep for this. So with that introduction, Natalie, how are you doing? That is the best introduction I've ever received. Um, mostly because <laughs> Leslie Nope, I have a background photo on my work computer. That's be the Leslie Nope of everything you do. Um, so I, I'm glad that that is coming out in my personality as well. Um, you know, I love that uh, this is the perfect time to be creative. Um, it, yeah, it is, you have to be adaptable right now. Um, and I think that's really interesting because, and not to get real nerdy about it already, but um, the research indicates that external forces are big in getting sport industry to be creative. And so I think it's funny now, we as sport management professors are, oh, external forces, never expecting it to be a pandemic, but external forces are forcing us um, to get innovative, to get creative. Um, not everybody. I mean, there's a lot of people already who are doing great creativity work. Um, but it is funny to me that I'm like, oh, yeah, I know how this works. External forces. Uh, you know, we all have resource constraints. It's all very exciting. Uh, but no, it's a, it's a good time. I'm uh, really grateful that you agreed to talk about this because it's my favorite thing to talk about. Yeah, and I feel bad because Natalie and I were supposed to record, put some together much earlier and it fell between the cracks mm -hmm. on my part. So I totally take the blame for that one. But I'm glad we were still able to kind of do this now. Also, if anyone hears them a little bit quieter, as Natalie says, I have a little bit of NPR voice going today. That is because being the stay-at-home parent, my son is sleeping above us. So I'm trying not to get too excited. So you're going to have to listen more particularly maybe to my words on tone and excitement or disappointment um, than potentially any tone I'm going to have. So I apologize for that ahead of time. But This will no. be fun for you to sound engineer because I get excited about everything. So um, I'll try not to get too loud oh, so that people don't have to keep turning up and down their volumes. 
Joke's on you, Nelly. I definitely don't spend that time, enough time editing. So this will just have to be a frustrating episode for our audience. So, <laughs> um, but kind of walking us through here, getting us started with talking about what are various opportunities that we can use for implementing either some type of innovation or creativeness within our teaching. So let's kind of focus first on what you think we can do for in-class options for the faculty that are still going to have to teach in class during um, the COVID pandemic. Yeah, I um, I work at a, at a, a teaching-focused research school, so I do some research, but a lot of what I do is teaching, um, and it's a real passion of mine, and so I try to incorporate creativity in a lot of different ways, but um, one of the things I first always encourage everyone to do is to understand where your students are at. I am always amazed at who self-identifies as someone who's creative and who self-identifies somebody as not creative. And I think even people who are opposed, I actually have a colleague who is incredibly innovative. She is, oh my gosh, I am inspired by her all the time. And she is adamant um, that I am the creative one in the group. Um, and she is not at all. And it, I think it's really fascinating to me that people identify in certain ways. Um, and I think too, depending on what kind of school you're at, uh, your students are going to bring in different perspectives. Um, you know, most of my students come from, uh, you know, the state of Tennessee. They come from lower income backgrounds. Um, they come from public schools. I, I don't get a lot of students who come from private schools. And they, they may say, well, that's not, you know, I didn't learn how to, I'm not a creative person. I didn't learn how to do that. They just told me to go you know, run the football and I ran the football or whatever it is. Um, and so getting them understanding where they're at the first thing you want to do um, and then breaking down those misconceptions and maybe, you know, listeners, maybe professors out there have those misconceptions themselves. Um, it's, it's anybody can be creative. Anybody. I have a hundred percent belief. Um, some people have personality types that are more likely to be creative, but anybody can choose um to be creative to be innovative um and so it and if you don't mind i'm going to actually jump into some very practical stuff yeah um, yeah that would be perfect yeah i you know we we're just talking about some great researchers that we've both interacted with and and um you know i love playing around with theory but i also live at a regional state school in appalachia so i i live a very practical life um, and I think the first thing is um, there's a couple of activities that you can do. And this is in any class. I do this in multiple different types of classes. I do it in sport management graduate research class. I do it in intro to sport management. I, I just, it's a constant practice. Um, is I try to help them identify problems um, within the industry. And they can be big problems. They can be small problems. Um, and usually what I do is I will just pick one of those problems, right? You can't change the world in one class period, but we'll choose one of those problems. Um, and we'll do a bunch of activities related to that problem just to help them break out from their usual mindset. Um, you know, my favorite is, uh, I've seen a lot of college athletic programs do, you know, college kids aren't coming to the games. Well, let's put out a survey Oh, they all want Wi-Fi. Okay, we put in, we spent $5 million putting in Wi-Fi in the stadium. They still didn't show up. Well, it's probably because you chose the easiest idea. You 
you know, the whole structure of that was not creative. It was, let's do something. Um, and so one of the ways that you can kind of cultivate that creativity is when you're at the idea generation stage is to think of as many ideas as you can in a minute. Um, and I usually give out prizes. I just collect random crap um, uh, that, you know, through my travels or just things people are getting rid of, um, you know, sports memorabilia or whatever. And I collect it in a big bag and um, I give out prizes for these activities um, just for fun, right? Like you need a little bit of reward for effort. Um, some kids are intrinsically motivated, some aren't. Um, and when I do as many ideas as you can in a minute, I'm always amazed at the kids. They just sit with their pencil and their pen and they like just tap, like they, they can't think of anything. And they might come up with two, um, you know, and they're like, well, I thought of this idea, but it wasn't very good. And that's, that to me, that's one of the issues with creativity is that people immediately dismiss their ideas. Um, mm immediately they oh that's not very good oh that's that's not feasible um and that's not the point of creativity the point of innovation is to figure out whether or not this is feasible it's possible it's a good you know it's it's fits within the vision of the organization um creativity is about coming up with those ideas um and so i have them do it again and i'm like the war re reward is as many ideas as you can. And you, you'll have, you know, they'll start to finally get it. And you'll have a student that'll come up with like 15 ideas. And eight of them are total crap. Just embarrassingly bad. And I always, I always uh, encourage them. I think in front of the whole class, I think that's a really important thing is like, wow, that idea, that, you know, we haven't invented AI robots yet. But so, yeah, that idea won't work. We know that, um, you know, we know that we can't fly without machines. However, the idea of this exercise was to just come up with as many ideas as you can. Um, and so it's like encouraging students just come up with ideas um, because we so quickly we just dismiss things. And yet so much of the creative ideas that we have are things that seemed crazy. Um, so that's like, that's one. Um, and I don't want to go into detail of all of them, but another one is my, this is my favorite is the worst idea ever. <laughs> and it's, so you go to the whiteboard and you draw a box and everyone's like, think outside the box. And immediately they jump in the box and they try to get out of the box. And that is so hard to do. And so my argument is that instead of being inside the box and trying to get out of it, why don't you head miles away or the edge of the whiteboard to, you know, a place that you know is not, you know, does not exist good ideas and come up with one of those ideas and then move toward the box, move toward what we've already, we already know works. Um, that's a lot easier than it is to be in the box and try to get yourself out of it. Um, and oh my gosh, their ideas. And it's so funny. And I think you know my personality well enough that I get really excited about bad ideas. I mean, you know, loud clapping and cheering, like that is a terrible idea. Congratulations. 
Um, and it just flips this whole idea on their head because these students are so scared to fail. Um, and I'll talk about it more with, with professors too. It's like that fear is such a hindrance. They're so afraid to look bad. They're so afraid to seem stupid. They're so afraid of not passing, um, which is, you know, fair on them. They're paying, you know, not as much at ETSU as, as many other schools, but they're paying money to go here. They don't want to fail. Um, but if you can reward those terrible ideas, you can move a terrible idea towards something. Um, I once had, I was trying to get away from murder. That's always their, murder is always the, the first worst idea. Um, so I'm glad that they have ethical, uh, you know, moral reasoning, but I was trying to get them away from murder because that's not, that's not helpful. Um, but I've, I've had, uh, I had a, a class one time, you know, I was like, all right, we have this empty recreation space. It was a recreation sport class and, you know, it's empty recreation space. How do we fill it? What do we fill it with? And somebody's worst idea was just burn it down. You solve the problem. You don't have to worry about filling it if you burn it down. And I was like, that is a terrible idea. That is a amazingly terrible idea. Um, and you know, the class just went wild and, 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 but I was like, all right, so that's a terrible idea, but what elements of that idea could we take into an idea that's more in line with the organizational goals? Um, and we worked through that terrible idea to get us to a place um, that had some really creative um, ideas related to like partnerships with the fire department and, you know, just things that maybe, you know, the local rec program hadn't bought up yet. Um, and then the final one, well, the final one that I really talk about is juxtaposition, uh, which I don't know if you've heard of it. Um, I, a lot of people who work in this area, it's pretty, probably pretty common is you take two ideas that don't seem related and you try to put them together. Um, and so you could potentially think of something new by using those, these two seemingly different ideas. So I actually have my students, they'll come up with their own ideas and then I'll, I'll have them find a pair and they'll have to cut, you know, use two of their ideas and try to come up with some sort of hybrid um, combination idea. Um, and so that can be also a different way of coming up with, you know, creative ideas for our, uh, our, you know, for the students. And then the final one is for actually from improv. Um, you know, a critical eye is fantastic. Um, it's really helpful for deciding if things are useful and if how feasible they can be. But at this stage, you want to be hyper positive. Um, this isn't the stage where you decide whether or not you can make it work. This is the stage where you just ideate. Uh, and so yes, and is from improv and Leslie Nope, I probably, uh, you know, the actress who plays her was an improver. Like I am sure probably just in my love of comedy, pick this up somewhere and you come up with an idea and then everyone has to add to it. So there's never, there's no one's allowed to say no. Um, and you can't dismiss it. You can't laugh at it. That's a really important one as well. Think about every department meeting you've ever been in. Uh, and someone comes with an idea and the first thing that happens is like eye rolls or laughter. I mean, that talk about a soul crusher. Um, and so I really try to get them to not do that and instead, okay, build on it. Um, and that can develop into something that's really creative and really, you know, innovative. Um, so those are sign of 
some of the in-class options. You can do this online um, as well. It's more fun when it's in person. Um, you can really get the class going, but that's just, and I do that in every class. Um, and I also, uh, I also recommend any faculty out there who are listening to this is um, have them do it more than once. Um, it, so often you fail at the beginning, but if you just keep practicing it, keep practicing, keep practicing it, that you get more used to it. Um, and it becomes a part of who you are. Whenever you identify a problem, you engage in some activities and then you come up with some solutions. Um, so that's, that's my one sort of piece of advice, which is hilarious to me that I have advice because I've only been doing this for four years, but, um, you know, I'm mad. I'm sure you feel the same way. It's sort of this, oh, I, I actually do know some things. Um, crazy but well I guess my comment on the last thing is sometimes I almost feel like creativity or innovation is helped by maybe not having 20 years of foundation built onto something because I feel like sometimes the heart the longer you do something in a certain way it just becomes that much more prob problematic to tear it down so in some ways maybe us not having done this for a decade or two decades or three decades has made it easier for us to tap into innovation and creativity. Um, I think, I, th I actually think yes and no. Um, there is a decent amount of research that indicates that having domain relevant skills, um, that knowing a lot about your field, knowing a lot about your industry, whatever it is that you're trying to teach, um, actually can help you um, if you do the other things. I think that it's only helpful in the sense that you want to try new things. Um, you know, you want to, you know, rather than, Hey, I, you know, I know everything about, let's go, let's pick a topic. I don't know anything about legal issues, right? We all, if, if people, you were at a hybrid school, you know, you're going to teach something legal issues related. Uh, you could be more creative if you had an expertise in legal issues if you chose to take that expertise and come up with ways of, you know, getting students engaged with it. Um, and I think that's where, so it's not so much that like you've been working at it a long time. It's whether or not you've chosen to want to solve the problems of your classroom. Um, and I think that takes a lot of effort, right? You have to be intrinsically motivated or you have to, you have to have motivation to want to not pick the easy route, which is the route you've been doing for the last, you know, 20 years. Mm. Um, whereas I think for us, we might have a little bit less knowledge of whatever topic we're teaching, but we have a lot more motivation to be creative. Um, so I think it's a, it's a, both can be good. Yeah. It, so this conversation is, tapped into some thoughts I've had before more than I ever thought of would. And one of the examples I give is my spouse played soccer in college and she just like soccer is her thing. And I know at times she's frustrated because I'd love to bring up the point that I haven't played soccer. I definitely watch soccer, but it's not maybe in my top two or three sports I watch, but I keep telling her and she, we, now it's become, kind of a laugh line for us about how I want to see a soccer match with no offsides. Oh. And I think for her, and this maybe taps in my 
my little bit of thought about expertise is like, she is so ingrained in the sport that mm-hmm. it's tough for her to see some major pillar get teared down like that. <laughs> oh. Where to me, it's like, I just want to see a game like it. Like I, I want to spend six months reprogramming pretty good soccer players to not even worry about offsides and to see what it would look like. You, uh-huh. uh, you touch on a really good point about, uh, sort of institution, like this love of institution. Right. And that, I think that's where a lot of these big sport organizations struggle. And I think higher ed struggles is, is there is that sunk cost bias of like, well, I've already put, this is just yes. how it is. Um, and I think we but see yet, the op- opposite of that with NCAA advocates, like there's people in our field that really want to see college athletics change in a, in a great way. And so those people, I think sometimes tap into their creativity in a great way because they've already are so committed to seeing great change that they're excited about what that change would look like. Um, yeah. And that, and I think it's interesting because I, uh, you talk about changing the game. Um, uh, Chris Green, who is my advisor, who's at uh, George Mason now, um, when she was my advisor at Texas and then Illinois is she's incredibly creative herself. So she, she didn't really know she wasn't an expert in creativity. She's always just game for her PhD students to sort of jump into whatever they're passionate about. And she obviously knows a lot about org behavior. You know, she knows the umbrella of what creativity innovation is housed in. Um, but she is actually really creative herself. And I love when we had a conversation about sport development, which obviously is her area of expertise is we talked about, um, she's like, why do we have to have subs at, at the kids level? Like, why not just get rid of subs? Why not just, you know, and it's this idea of the why not, right? The yes and um, that, you know, it, it, some people I think are, have a, have a personality of playfulness or curiosity. Um, They also don't lose their entire life earnings if things change. I think that's really hard. Um, (laughs) Yes. <laughs> so I think that that to get people to to and I think that's what's excited about doing it in the classroom um, is the place to introduce it because you have so much less to fail. Um, you're not going to lose your job. You're not going to, you know, maybe you've got kids and a mortgage, and, and that's a scary prospect. Um, but if you build creativity into the classroom, you make it part of their practice. You don't make it a part of their grade. Um, that can be a really great way for students to, you know, a spark to have happen and them to engage in this and get excited about it. You know, I know that um, there's a bunch of folks around sport management right now who are doing design thinking, which is a very similar line um, of thought related to getting people to think about innovative ideas for, you know, people centric solutions. Um, and I think that I'm really excited to see you, you know, I excited to see them embrace that. Um, because I think that was a real game changer for me when I was introduced to that at Illinois was I was like, Oh, wow. Um, I can be creative. I can do all of this while I have less at stake. Um, and that's for students to get them to understand that, you know, this is, this is something that's going to help you. This is a skill, but at the same time, you know, you're going to be all right, you know, show up to class, do your work. You're going to be fine grade wise. Um, I wish kids wouldn't care so much about their GPA, to be honest. 
Uh, well, I wish some of my students wouldn't care about the GPA as much. I with others perhaps would, would you know, perhaps care a little bit more. Uh, but I think that's natural and <laughs> natural in all programs. Um, but getting them to to because if you make that a part of your practice, make that a part of who you are, it it's a lot less scary when you are you know the new general manager of um, you know minor league baseball team. Um, you know I'm I'm good buddies with our local guy and. You know, it's been a rough time, but fortunately, he's somebody who already was very innovative and really believed in that. And he's pivoted like I've I mean, I'm very impressed with how he's dealing with everything going on right now. And I think it's because he he long before it was. It was really all stakes, you know, everything is the word I'm looking for. Um, the long before the stakes were high, he was practicing his creative abilities. And I think that's getting students to start doing that when the stakes aren't quite as high. Maybe when they get into the NCAA, they won't, they won't make those decisions out of fear. Um, well, well, and this might transition a little bit to conversations about like assignment and projects, but there's that old adage that like necessity is the motherhood of invention. And I think at times that there are moments like that, like, I'm going to give an example, like a low level example of sometimes we get frustrated about an outcome and that, and maybe this is a part of our rationalization to not blame ourselves and to put the onus on someone else's to come up with a creative way and how this should have been handled. Um, and so my small example is I, as of this recording, I tweeted, I think a couple of days ago about how I'm like two weeks away from having a paper and review for a year. Oh yeah. Um, and we, we've all experienced that. This definitely isn't anything that I'm saying that this is unique, but I jokingly told um, a friend of mine, I was like, you know what, maybe after a year journal should just be rec like have to accept my paper as is, you know, just being somewhat satirical about it. But it made me think of like, there is no punishment for a journal or reviewers are taking so long. So maybe there should be some benefit for whatever that would come, but that it's, again, you're saying you're talking about like bad ideas. It's not a good idea. If a paper falls between the cracks that suddenly my paper becomes accepted as is, because it could be talking about something that really is not good work at all. Right. But those are the kind of the weird thoughts that I have, like maybe in a moment of frustration. And so it becomes, especially during this COVID thing that we're all potentially being frustrated or annoyed or being challenged that sometimes those are, creating our best ideas. Like I've already seen a couple articles that talking about how LMS, like a learning management system, something like a blackboard canvas, whatever, have actually gotten a lot of good feedback from faculty that have never had to use an LMS because maybe they've been teaching for a really long, long, long time and they haven't used it or people are now being required to only use this. And so they're already seeing some planned changes that they're going to roll out in the future because the feedback they're getting is so much stronger because of that necessity. I uh, wholeheartedly agree to an extent. I love it. It's always right. It depends. That's always the answer. Is, yeah. Um, you know, I, I talk to a lot of younger faculty. I try to when I'm at NASM, I, um, I talk to them about what it's like to teach a 4-4 or teach a 3-3 plus, you know, X, Y, and Z. I'm, I teach a 3-3 plus I supervise our graduate interns plus I'm a graduate coordinator, you know, plus, plus, plus. Um, it, those are constraints. Cause I also like 
my social life. You know, I, I, I enjoy being a member of my community. I enjoy being married. Um, I'm not going to um, work 80 hours a week. I've, uh, I've already made that choice for myself. So then how do I get creative um, in balancing all that? And, and that's, so that's a resource constraint. And that resource constraint can force me to be creative in developing, uh, you know, curriculum and in developing, um, even in my research, um, that, that, but the counterpoint to that is if you have too much resource constraint, then you have to choose whatever's the easiest solution. Um, they actually, Chris Barnell, who is, uh, saved me from just never publishing again. Um, I met him at CSRI and he approached me with, you know, he's like, you do innovation stuff. And he was amazing to bring me in on these projects that sort of brought me back from just teaching 4-4 and drowning. Um, the project we just published basically indicated that innovative work behaviors do not relate to organizational success for these organizations that are really small. And one of our arguments is that potentially this could be because they have too much resource constraint. So it is definitely a balance of, you know, and that's where I was, you know, we say, um, that's why I ask students, like, come up with as many ideas in a minute. Because you don't want to give them no time at all. Like, you, you, no time limit. You want them to have a time limit. You want deadlines. You want grades to some extent. Um, but you also don't want it to be too constrictive um, and make it so that people just choose whatever is the easiest. And I think that's an interesting part about like for students is depending on what they have going on in their lives, it, they are probably going to choose the easiest thing. And it's not a judgment call. I'm not, you know, I'd love all my students to be incredibly creative, but if I can give them these tools and they can use them when they're resource, you know, when they have more time, they, I mean, I've got students with multiple kids and two jobs and, you know, they've got a lot going on. I get it. They're not going to show up with super creative ideas. Uh, but hopefully I can give them the tools so that when, you know, and the practice. So then when they do have that, hopefully a bit more time, hopefully, a, you know, a full-time job somewhere that they can start practicing that um, in you know, in those places when it counts. Well, I do, I really do like that one minute thing because at times I've, I've definitely had this thought of like, you know what, if I just say that I can only write for the next 10 minutes, I seem like I'll get more done than if I have an hour and a half to write. And it kind of strips the, I don't know what the word is, but like the caution and your mentality of like, okay, that's a really bad idea because in 90 minutes, it feels like maybe I need to come up with really, really, really good ideas because I have 90 minutes to think about this. But if I only have a minute, then it's like, there is maybe less caution about, I don't care about bad ideas. Now you mentioned that there's still students that maybe in the beginning are definitely pulling punches, but after a while, I could definitely see how that they'd be more willing to just tell you exactly whatever's coming to their mind. And, and I think a part of that is uh, another piece of research. Let me tell you, my research has finally started getting published. Um, and, and so it's exciting to be able to talk about it in the sense that you actually can go read it um, rather than just on my laptop. But the, another piece um, of research that I published this year uh, with, with my advisor, Chris Green, is um, we found that work environment 
played a big role. Um, and part of that work environment is um, clear vision. So, uh, you know, it, with that idea, with those kind of ideas, they know they're trying to solve a particular problem, right? It's not just come up with ideas for sports. That's way too broad. You need to narrow it down a little bit. Um, and then the second part of that is participative safety, which is, I think, massive, um, is people have to feel comfortable bringing their ideas to the table. Um, and I think this plays a huge role. And I know um, uh, Kwame just put something out on LinkedIn about uh, his consultant company about doing design thinking um, related to racism is, yeah, people have to feel comfortable bringing their ideas to the table. Um, and what are you doing as a faculty member, as a professor to implicitly, explicitly, uh, you know, we love, I mean, there's a lot of funny professors out there. They're super snarky. Their Twitter is amazing. Um, I wish I was that funny, <laughs> but they're also, they can be me. Um, and when you're talking about a 19 year old kid and you're a 30, you know, nine year old, particularly you know, male, white male professor with a doctorate in, you know, yeah, they're going to, they're going to be reluctant to bring what could be an amazing idea um, to the table. They're going to play it safe. Um, but if you come in and you, you know, you try to build that safe environment, um, yeah, you're going to get a ton of bad ideas, but you're also going to get, um, I always call ideas with legs. Um, and I'd so much rather have a thousand bad ideas and one, one that will, if they decide to pursue it, could change the course of sport industry than to never hear those ideas at all um, and just always get the same thing over and over again. But that's also, you know, I guess that's also my personality is I'm, I'm more patient to hear bad ideas because I know that eventually I'll get a good one. <laughs> Well, and so that'd be the one thing I would add into this is sometimes I think you need the right partnership or environment, just like you said, to be comfortable and be willing to hear those bad ideas. Because for me, I definitely feel that on the research side mm. and crafting a manuscript, especially like with theory, the key is if you want to go to um, a really good especially like top level sport management journal, you need to think really hard about how you're moving theory forward. And that really requires you to tap into some of that creativity and you need to be, to have partners that you can bounce bad ideas off of and they aren't going to judge you for it. It's just going to be like, is this something that we could do or not? Um, and like, I always say like, I guess I shouldn't, say, I always say this, but I've been thinking about this last like year talking to a friend of mine that I feel like there's only like 10% of like good ideas that like you instantly hear them and know they're a really good idea mm -hmm. or the rest of them, you need a lot more details. Like, okay, you know, there's something here, but let's talk more about it type thing. Well, and I mean that, uh, that story about the Tough Mudder, um, I always use that even though the guy actually stole that idea from someone in England, but that's a whole another story. Um, but he, he submitted it to Harvard business, uh, competition and he didn't get, he got second and it was just, they, they thought about feasibility. Like they were like, I, this isn't first because you know, who would want to run through, um, electrified wire? Well, it, yeah, they needed, apparently they needed more detail because it turns out there's a whole lot of people who want to run through, not me personally, but um, there's a whole lot of people out there who want to pay 
to run through, you know, electrified wire. Um, and he obviously well, tapped into that. Yeah. Which is also seems lunacy to me, but I'm also <laughs> the person that seems completely comfortable about how cool it would be to jump out of an airplane where yeah. my spouse would be like, that's is as dumb, more dumb. Hey, isn't it? I mean, somebody thought of that idea. Like that is, I mean, the invention of the airplane is not, you know, it's not that long ago. And somebody thought of, oh my gosh, this plane is up in the air. What if we jump from it? And how would we survive? Um, I, I love, yeah. I, I love um, looking at the process um, of creativity because I find it so fat. How did you get, I love new ideas. That's great. Um, but I always want to know is like, how did you get there? See, and talking about the process stuff is a lot more like very intriguing to me because even talking about this with like flight and stuff, there's like some great documentaries, like in PBS has a thing, like even pre rockets about like how NASA was like a lot of like weather balloons and trying to see how high we go up in the air before people would have like oxygen issues. And like, I can't even imagine thinking about going to space without ever going there and having to run through a bazillion contingencies or issues that you never had to worry about. Um, and having to kind of game through all those scenarios one at a time. That's, that'd be so wild to me. Yeah. But yeah, so kind of picking this up, I know we've kind of talked a lot about teaching. I mean, is there anything on assignments or projects or exams that you want to tap into that we haven't already? Um, I think that the, the big thing with sort of assignments and exams is, and this isn't anything new. Um, I'm not, you know, I'm not the one being creative about this, uh, but I love reading about it is, um, they're actually, I'm not a big exam person. Um, I really like projects, but at the same time, students do actually have to have a certain amount of domain relevant skills. Um, and I think we don't really take that into account sometimes is, is they do actually need to know, um, a certain amount of knowledge and now they can pick that knowledge up and they don't have to, you know, memorize it. Um, but they, they need to be able to draw from that knowledge base to come up with creative ideas. Um, so, so, you know, I do, I do small quizzes. Um, I try to get them to do multiple iterations of a project so that I can see where they're lacking in terms of the domain relevant skills. Um, and it's just thinking about, yeah, you know, coming up with ideas is only as good as how much you know about what's really happening. Um, and, um, and coming up with, you know, what are the actual problems and that you, I think you really need to know, need to know what's going on, um, and need to know, um, what's happening in the field, um, and happening, um, out there is to get them to come up with creative ideas is, is to get them to know what's going on, um, as well. So that's my one sort of last, uh, I, I think we, we should give students more credit than we do uh, because they actually do come up with really interesting ideas, but because of the nature of how, you know, our public school system related to testing, so many of them come up with, at least in, you know, in my universities, they just come with such lack of confidence. 
And it's just getting them to like, yes, okay, yes, okay, that idea, there's some elements there. Let's build on those elements. You know, they, I think just, just getting them, getting them to believe in themselves um, can also be incredibly helpful uh, in terms of, you know, in specifically in terms of getting them to think of creative ideas. Yeah, I think that's fair. Um, so kind of transitioning to thinking about how to implement this creativity or innovation within research. How would you kind of walk through designing a project um, and putting in major components of this within your work? Are we pre-tenure or tenure? No. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think I think the one thing that's helpful to think about um, is the management definition of creativity. So, uh, and this is kind of really important for anybody who's listening who is actually loves creativity itself. Um, as a discipline is I'm really talking about creativity from a management perspective, which is that it's new and useful. Um, I have all sorts of random ideas related to research, most of which because of my teaching load, um, I will never see the light of day. Um, I have given out more ideas than I probably conducted myself. Um, but see, I'm reaching that point too. Like I remember when I was a doc student, I feel like good ideas are really hard. Now it's like, here, take this idea. I, yeah. I think it's a really good idea. I just, it's just something I don't have the time or means to do. And I, I think that's why, and, and there's some pluses and minuses to, you know, some pros and cons to open innovation. Um, I am a massive uh, proponent of it. I, you know, people may disagree with me on that, but, you know, when I get that there's competition and, and so open innovation doesn't work all the time, but I would, I love sharing ideas. Um, and, and I mean, I even, I had a, I had a great idea and, you know, it got somebody to, you know, took it and, you know, published before me. Um, and, you know, it just made my research not as interesting or as novel. Um, but you know what, like, that's on me. I should have gotten it out faster. Um, so I think that that I, you know, as much, as much as, competition is good. I think also open innovation can also spur, yeah, just giving ideas to people. Um, and I think, so that idea of creativity being new and useful is, um, is helpful for researchers in the sense that that useful side of it, um, and that new side of it. So the new side, I think when you're in your PhD program, um, I will tell you mine was somewhat unconventional. Um, because I started at Texas for a year and then I transferred to Illinois. I was first in sport management only and then we were recreation, sport and tourism. Uh, Chris Green is uh, notoriously um, sort of open to new ideas and um, you know, which has, you know, she overextends herself a bit. Um, and so uh, it, I didn't get the same PhD experiences that I've heard from other people about, you know, people really talking about practicality. Um, really talking about, okay, extend, you know, you care about this. All right. Extend it by a tiny bit. And I get the usefulness of that, right? You need to learn how to conduct research and how to get it done. Um, and you need to get published quickly and you need to graduate. Um, and I totally understand that, but then how do you pivot into your 35? Well, it's, yeah, for me, it'll end up being about 35 year career. Um, 
that, you know, I think some people struggle with that um, because they were so focused on the incremental, um, not really thinking about creative solutions in their or creativity in their research um, is then, okay, how do you transition into that? Because now we're talking about, you know, what impact do you want to make? Um, I, you know, what, when you look back, um, what role do you want to have um, in sport management as a field? Um, and so I think the first thing that, that uh, professors can do who are PhD students, be careful, just to, you know, get graduate, just listen to your PhD yeah. advisor and graduate. I'm not really <laughs> talking to you. Um, I, I, I had a lot of crying in my PhD because I, I there's a lot of pivoting and, and um, yeah, it, I wouldn't recommend anyone kind of, I, I got, I think I got a job just out of pure passion, less so than my qualifications as a researcher. Um, and so, but, so this is more for everybody else is um, the first thing you, you want to do is talk to people, um, both researchers, but also practitioners. Um, because if you want your research to be new and useful, um, useful to whom? I think that is, for me, um, having worked in professional sports for a while, uh, you know, I want my research to always have a practical component to it. Um, I want to understand what's happening in their field, um, in their particular context, and see how I can help. Um, because I have resources that they don't have and mostly time. Um, and then, but if you're really interested in theory development, um, then also that idea of, you know, it, are you being useful to the field? Are you actually advancing it? Um, so you have to just learn a lot. Um, and you don't stop learning when you're done with your PhD. Um, and so there's that side of it, but then I think also to get really creative is you want to gain diverse knowledge. So yeah, you want to learn what's happening in the field, but uh, you also want to know what's happening in a lot of other disciplines. Um, and I think the biggest hurdle to that is efficiency. Like we teach management, right? Efficiency and effectiveness. That's, we value that, right? We're, you know, capitalism 101. Um, you know, we're not gonna have a conversation about that, but, uh, <laughs> but uh, it's not efficient to go to campus events. You know, it's not efficient to, um, you know, become friends with a film studies professor and talk about sports films. Like I, I'm not gonna ever study sports films, um, but I love learning about sports films from a film perspective rather than a sport perspective. Um, they're also our neighbors and we go running. So it's actually is efficient because I also work out, but, uh, <laughs> you know, I remember, and this is one very specific example that happened to me at Illinois was our PhD seminar was, uh, all the PhD students. So it was recreation, sport and tourism. And let me tell you the variety of research in that room, um, was mind boggling. And there, everyone had to present their research. And there were complaints from some students uh, about, you know, well, this doesn't, you know, this isn't about tourism. So now I have to sit through a presentation about something that's not tourism. Like, come on, 
you know, I need this to be relevant to me. Um, whereas I remember this guy presented about human wildlife, like bear uh, interactions. That has, <laughs> I will never ever need to know anything about human bear interactions except when I go hiking. I'm going to say um, you're in East Tennessee, so you, this might be more pertinent <laughs> than you're realizing. That's true. Yeah. It's uh, it was more of a personal uh, pertinent than it was a professional, but he, he presented, I had never heard of GIS before that. Um, and he, this methodology that is very common in natural resource management and parks. And, um, it was the first time I had heard it and I just, Oh my gosh. And I still think about it every so often I'll be in meetings at the community level or, or it was where we're a support and recreation program. And I'll think about that. Like, Oh, you know what we should do? No. And I think about just that one idea and how it stuck with me. Um, I never would have heard of that. Uh, well, I never would have had that experience if I wasn't in the room with people who did something different than me. Well, and kind of going off that, not as disassociated, but going to conferences with a little bit of different spin can create creativity in the sense of there might be stuff that the area of business or higher ed, recreation, that they are using maybe on a traditional basis where they don't view it as creative. This is maybe more very the norm, but within our field or applying it within the context of sport might make it more creative or unique. Mm -hmm. And so there are times I go to a presentation or even I'll read a paper and it's like, man, I'm really surprised we are doing this more often in sport management. And then you implement it within a sport management paper and you might get comments like, Oh, this is really unique or innovative that you would never get if you went back to um, where you initially came up with that idea. Oh yeah. I think that if I presented my, uh, creativity paper, you know, let's say I, I emailed it to Mobley, who's at Harvard, who's one of my heroes, who's a creativity expert. If I emailed her my paper, she'd be like, Oh, okay. Like, yeah, this is pretty par for the course. Um, yeah, because for her, it's like, she's so steeped in creativity. It, it's just a new context for her. Whereas, um, I definitely think introducing it. Um, I mean that, that I'm not the only one doing creativity in sport. There's a, there's a number of us, but, um, that it was just something slightly new for a, a good number of people, I think, cause it was a new, um, context The I will say the one thing, um, so, so getting all these ideas and letting it spark new ideas for you, um, is, uh, how do you, you know, you have this, and I'm sure you you have this. I know a lot of professors have this. You have these ideas. You don't have time um, to do all of them. I mean, there's no way. 
you, there's no way that we could do all these ideas. Um, one thing you do, you can give them away, like you talked about, right? Just um, sharing them with people and letting them kind of run with them. Um, I think that another thing that you can do in helping decide which ideas you're going to pursue uh, is, again, going back to that, what is new and useful related to you? Like, what do you want, who do you want this to be new and useful for? Um, and that, you know, I can't give anyone advice about that. That is totally up to you as a person and kind of figuring out, um, who you want to be, um, in the next, you know, how many ever long years you're in this field. Uh, and I mean, being open to pivot, I'm not saying, you know, everyone should just stay their course. Like I'm going to be a, you know, I'm going to only do practitioner research the rest of my life. Um, but I think picking out sort of what might be your, your vision, I guess, uh, can really help you decide which of those ideas that you want to implement. Um, and yeah, and I think just one more kind of point to that, and I know this isn't actually a laying out how to be creative, um, is that um, I think fear plays a big role, like we kind of talked about with our students. Um, let's be honest. We, I, you know, and you, I know you're going to probably make fun of me again for this, but, um, I have a hashtag, like I live it, teach it. I came up with that six years ago and it helps me so much to maintain kind of the core of who I am and the core of who I want to be as a, as a professor. Um, and I think part of that is just acknowledging and I acknowledge it to my students. I, you know, is acknowledging that yeah, fear, you're scared. I get scared too. Um, and I think that publish or perish is a daunting, uh, a daunting thing for a lot of young faculty. Um, I think the changing demographics of higher education and, you know, I mean, we're going through some hard times right now. It's only, it's not going to get better um, based off of our demographics of the United States is that are you, your response is fear and fear is okay, but fear also, if you, depending on how you respond to it can hinder your creativity because you are going to not be able to look at problems. Uh, you're going to focus on maybe the easier problem. You're gonna focus on um, the problem that seems to be the most important, when in reality, if you looked at all the problems, you might recognize that it isn't. Um, it also impacts your idea generation. So you're not gonna put the time in to generate ideas if you know, I, I just need to know, how do I publish, you know, I don't know how many people are required at better universities than mine, but you know, I, I need to publish two to three a year. Um, that's, that, can, that can impact you um, in your ability to be creative. And I think it just depends on how do you respond to that um, and what choices do you make to help you still be creative, even if you do have that fear. I'll tell you, I'm afraid of heights, um, like terrified of heights. I go hiking all the time. Um, I am the person who fixes things around the house. Um, and I get on a ladder, even though every single time my heart is like racing. Um, and so it's like, yeah, I'm still afraid. Uh, I'm not going to pretend like I'm not afraid, but I'm not going to let my fear, uh, ruin my opportunities to see glaciers or grizzly bears or I'm just this whole example is all actually about Glacier National Park but uh <laughs> but I think that that 
that's kind of a great example, a very small example of just sort of understanding the role of that and um, how that, you know, are you afraid of losing your job? Well, then you're, that's a very scary thing. Um, I will tell you in terms of fear related to losing your job is, I think the hardest part about our field is that you don't feel like you can do anything else. And this doesn't really relate to creativity, although it does certainly hinder it. And I think it hinders it related to your teaching and your research and your service is that we're, if you feel like you have no other options, um, you're just more likely to do whatever you need to do to survive. Um, my, I've already identified my backup option. Um, I am actually really good at plumbing. Um, I, I can replace a toilet like nobody's business. Uh, and I think that actually I'd be a decent plumber. So it's, and there's something weird about that. There's something weird about just that feeling of like, you know what, this professor thing doesn't work out, which I enjoy very much. And I don't want to change my career. If it doesn't work out, you know, I actually, I think this market could actually use a female plumber that actually responds to phone calls. Uh, I know. I mean, I know you're like 25% joking, but I think <laughs> having ideas like that is great. Like, I mean, even earlier this spring, I was like, Hey, I can take classes for free at UC. Maybe I should be taking a class or two to potentially yeah, create a backup plan or to maybe activate a part of my brain that I'm not thinking about or using while coming up or teaching or researching right now. Um, but heck yeah, plumbers get paid great. And you can be oh, in I know. union, like, oh man. They're getting way much more money than I am. Uh, and I think you're... Uh, your partner is not an academic, correct? Correct. Yeah, mine is not either. And and I, I think academics marrying academics, that's great. Um, I think you it's really helpful to have a regular contact with somebody who uh, is not an academic. <laughs> Outside uh, of the world. I, I think it activates a different part of your brain. Like you said, I mean, I think it's, it's you know, go. I, my wife always jokes that I'm a hobby. I'm a, my hobby is picking up hobbies. Um, and I've, I've tried woodworking and I've, you know, Kung Fu and, um, these all languages. sound like things that Leslie Nope is kind of like her hobby is to create new hobbies. It's, that is the most, yeah, that is a very Leslie Nope thing to do. Um, you're, you're woodworking, like with, woodworking with Ron Swanson, like, <laughs> like doing things with Ann Perkins, like giving gifts away like this. You're just further fueling my connection. I I suddenly have the urge to dye my hair blonde. I don't know. This is <laughs> and run for city council. It's, okay, actually, that no. <laughs> <laughs> Fun fact about that. I uh, I actually am locally involved in some uh, oh, in some community related things. Um, but I think I think that is that's, uh, and I think it's understanding what's going to work for you. Um, you know, we we can examples are great, right? And um, uh, again, I was talking to some young faculty and, uh, and I'm like, look, I'm going to tell you what I do and I'm going to tell you how I, my process, but at the end of the day, every single student, every single professor, every single organization, they have to figure out what's going to work for them. Um, and our higher education and sports, it's like the combination of two fields that love to do exactly what everybody else is doing. Mm. There, I mean, and I think I was, I think I was talking to Matt Katz about this, that uh, 
and it's in our research too. I see it as a bias um, and in my own research, this is not a critique of other people's, this is also mine, is that we um, will say, oh yeah, that's an innovation. And I'm like, no, actually that's just you stealing somebody else's idea and hoping that it'll work <laughs> for you. And those are two different things. Um, it may, you may end up taking somebody else's idea. There's nothing, you know, I do it all the time. Um, I love the teaching and learning fair at NASM. And, but at the same time, you have to know your own context. You have to think about what are the actual problems you have. I mean, I'll, I'll tell you, uh, you know, Cincinnati, East Tennessee State, yeah, we're not that far away from each other, but, you know, our students are different. Um, Very. And, and we need to, yeah, we need to create a classroom that's going to work for the students that we have. Um, and that's where I think creativity, rather than just, well, this is, you know, let's say you move institutions. Well, this is what I did at my last school, so I'm going to do it again. Um, and, you know, if I did what I taught at Illinois, at East Tennessee State, I, I mean, they, they already struggle with, you know, I'm, I'm very clearly not from the South. Um, they, <laughs> they already don't know quite know what to do with me already. So I can't imagine coming in and trying to teach them exactly the way I would teach, you know, my, um, you know, corn fed, uh, uh, Illinois students who are all from the suburbs of Chicago. <laughs> uh, well, so one thing I was going to mention there before we have to transition to the next topic is when I was a doc student, I definitely went to other people's presentations and wrote down unique things that they were saying and how I could connect it to my general research area. And, um, you, you were juxtapositioning. You didn't even know it. You were I juxtapositioning. You, you, that is the perfect example of, I think professors, I think people in general are so much more creative than they even realize. Um, so, I mean, this podcast might be useless because everybody's going to go, yeah, I already do all that. But, oh, great. But, <laughs> but at least then they, they can identify themselves as creative. Well, yeah, I mean, I definitely, I think it definitely works well for me at NASM. And I think a lot of people have told me this too, that NASM's more their networking conference than necessarily their go to presentation conference because maybe the topics aren't as relevant for every person. Um, cause we're hitting a much wider scope, but for me as a doc student, that ended up being great because I would hear ideas that weren't related to mine and I had to go in and think about how to connect that idea with an idea. Maybe I had, um, whether that's a methodology or the people they talked to or the analysis they did. And then just, yeah, it made me think deeper about what I want to do and maybe finding something unique about it that I could apply on my own. So 100% that. Um, that idea of practicing, you know, learning, you know, experiencing other people's work and then seeing how it connects that those connections. Cause what you actually do um, is that you also uh, uh, build synapses in your brain. So, I mean, it's, and I, you know, I do some social network analysis, so it is like sort of the way I view the world I'm biased in that way. But um, you, you do actually, the neuroscience says that you, you're, when you do that juxtaposition, you're building new synapses. And so you're actually building that connection as you're writing down a connection. Um, and so you, that's something that, that it just time and practice. And I love, I love going um, to conferences and to NASM and just 
learning uh, and oh, it's so fun. And I think maybe that's another thing about uh, hopefully if, if there are professors out there who are feeling burnt out, um, which I get, you know, it can be a grind. We're, we're relatively young in our career, so we're still energetic and excited is, is mix it up, you know, just go out there, show up to a conference and just wander into, into rooms and, you know, think about, about those ideas and maybe it'll spark something new. Maybe it'll, it'll get you out of that burnout phase. Yeah, for sure. So kind of the last thing that Nellie and I want to talk about, and we'll kind of go through this rapid fire as we can as, Natalie is the keeper of job posting information. And so if you, if you ever need a job out there, Natalie is the person to give a hundred dollar handshake to. So misleading. Hey, I'm telling it like it is. I do appreciate the hundred dollar handshake though. (laughs) So we want to do a kind of quick run through to see at least the jobs that have been open this last year, who we know have taken some of those jobs. Obviously, there's probably going to be a good chunk of these that we have no idea. So people can comment on this once it's posted online. But now he's going to kind of walk through the job postings and we're going to see who we know has taken any of those jobs. And then even potentially if there's, because Natalie has a list I haven't looked at in a while, so I could be way off here, but I might have some people I've written down that I know have taken a job that maybe aren't on that list. Um, I, w- I will tell you the, um, just to give a little plug for the NASA Marketing Communications Committee, um, that if you want a quick way to get new ideas is go to the NASA blog because we publish research in a very digestible way. Um, and I've actually learned a lot from these people when I post their ideas or, or their research is I'm like, oh, I didn't know that about whatever topic they're. So that's my quick little plug about it. But I also say we, according to our, Um, my calculation as one who kind of started doing this is uh, there were a hundred jobs open this year. Wow. A hundred. And that's not this tenure track. That'll be anything. Anything full-time. Yeah. That's incredible. Cause it's, that'd be an interesting thing to, I've always wanted to know is like how the job postings have changed over time. Well, you know, maybe somebody and myself have been uh, collecting this data and maybe uh, you might, get to read that uh, research one of these days. <laughs> this is data point number one right now. <laughs> yeah, so I just, it's, it's amazing. And I, that's the interesting part about this is that while it's a hundred jobs, um, what I don't have confirmation of is how many of these actually stayed open. Yeah, and um, one job I know that they didn't fill that potentially is on there is Texas Tech. Um, Texas Tech did have an opening, but it happened in the spring. And then by the time they were going to launch everything, it obviously wasn't really practical. Um, and so, yeah, so the thing is, is any of these jobs that didn't get filled are obviously going to be at risk of who knows if they're going to open in the fall, if people are going to hold off, if, if unfilled positions end up being part of the sweep of anything that related to budgetary gaps. So, yeah. So I know of at least one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven. 10, 11. I got 12. So I only know 12%. Jeez. Maybe I'll know some more once I hear some of these, but Matt, Matt Hummel, you know, everybody. 12%. That is amazing. That's 12. all I know. No, think about it more from a, like a publication standpoint, right? You know I mean? Oh, you're, gosh. you're, you have a better acceptance rate than uh, some of our journals. So 
12%. Yeah. If I get a 12% at like at, at JSM, then we'd be really talking about something. <laughs> so yeah. So which, who do you, what do you know? So the ones, here's the ones I know. And then Nelly might read off some of the ones that we don't know. And then maybe it'll spur some thoughts, but and I apologize for any people's last names. All these people, I just, I potentially call them by my, their first name. and may not know how to say their last name, but um, related to Texas Tech job, I know Chris McLeod got the job at University of Florida. He's a Florida State grad, so he's leaving Texas Tech to go to Florida. Neil Turns, who's a Florida State grad, he's a baby doc. He's got the Arkansas State job, and I saw that just posted on Twitter. I don't know Neil um, or anything going on there. Joe Saban, um, and now if I'm saying these wrong and you know, you just correct me. Oh, he, yeah. He got the job at Southeastern Louisiana, um, and he's at Dubuque, I think, right now. So he's leaving there. A&M might have only posted one job, but they actually hired two people. They hired Brian McCullough from Seattle. Oh, yeah. I heard about that one. Um, and he, his research is more on, what, sport ecology. Mm-hmm. And then they also hired Kelvin Knight. So I think – these two jobs are related to Matt Walker leaving to go to North Texas, which happened way late last year, I think. And then um, one other that is escaping me. I think they had someone leave to go to Georgia, but I can't think of the name right off the top of my head. But yeah, Calvin was at North Texas, so he's leaving there. So they're both going to A&M. Sam Schmidt was at Wilkes. He's took the job at UW Lacrosse, which is his alma mater. So I know he's through the roof about that. Oh, that's exciting. I love when that happens. When people get the job that just, you know, they've been gunning for since they yeah, began. Exactly. So we'll see Sam there for the next 50 years. <laughs> <laughs> um, Greg Greenhall's leaving Virginia Commonwealth for a job down at University of South Florida. Um, so South Florida continues to accumulate some really strong names on there. They'll be exciting in the future. Um, South Carolina hired young Jing Huang. I think he's one of their doc students, but I might be way off on that. So anyone that's hearing that and saying I'm wrong, go ahead and email me and tell me how foolish I am. But yeah, they got the job at South Carolina. Adam Coco got one of the two jobs at Louisville. The other one was a failed search. I don't know if that's going to open up next year. Um, Dominique Croak got the job at Xavier university. She was a baby doc at Kansas. Yeah, she was student NASM student president. It's you know, a, we we have a WhatsApp group now. I'm just kidding. I know you guys are like the the Freemasons, like everyone. We <laughs> we only know of you, but we don't really know all the inner workings going on there. Um, she's taking the job down at Xavier, so I'll have to get a chance to connect with her now that we're in the same city. Marcella Otto, who was at Baby Doc at Louisiana State, she got the full time job that was posted at Northern Illinois. Oh, so awesome. she's going to a job yet yeah, close to where I grew up. And then Farah, who is at SUNY Cortland, he got the job at Aurora University, uh, which is my dad's alma mater. So shout out to Dan Hummel, who is definitely not listening to this. Not like he would have any clue what a podcast is, but um, at least I can tell him that I mentioned him later. Those are the ones I've got. So that's what, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, twelve. Yeah, that's all I got for you. So in... I think a real shame because I, I fully admit I'm part of the Texas, Illinois industrial complex. Um, and you know, uh, uh, I, 
the diaspora. I don't know what, I don't know what to describe it as, but I, I've had the pleasure of having a lot of different professors who are now all over the country doing amazing things. And so usually at NASM, I mean, I just scoop up the, the information about who went where. And, um, that was a real tough loss for me to not, uh, to not get that. The only addition I have to this, um, is that I know David Tyler left, uh, uh, Western Carolina to go back to, to UMass Amherst. Um, I know he, uh, we're only an hour and well, an hour away because he lives in Asheville. Um, I know he loved it, Western Carolina, but you know, he got his PhD at at UMass. I know he's really excited to go back there. Um, For topics that have no relation to support management. My favorite drive is between Knoxville and Asheville. Just driving through Western North Carolina, East Tennessee up there. It's just, an incredible little drive. Um, well, it's the the drive from Asheville to Johnson City uh, is on 26, and the best part about that drive is that when you get Asheville, you know, full of traffic, you get up to about Mars Hill, and it's like people forget there's a highway after that, um, <laughs> and it's just you and maybe one other person from East Tennessee. It's just two of you just living, you know, the beautiful mountain. Vista, you're, there's nobody on the highway. It's uh, it's hilarious. Um, but <laughs> I'm not going to talk about how great Johnson City is because I would like people to not move here. Um, so I should probably complain more about uh, my location. Yeah, it's terrible. It's <laughs> not a whole lot going on. You get a lot of peace. I guess you could say that there's some interesting political thoughts out there. We'll just keep it as simple as that. <laughs> You know, uh, I, the part, the interesting part about creativity is yet I have a diversity of thought, you know, so I get a nice, uh, I get to travel the world, get a lot of diversity of thought. So that's, I'll leave, I'll leave it at that as well. You get to learn how other people think. Um, but (laughs) yeah, that's, I think it's really interesting. The, um, the job market right now. And I think, I think it'll be interesting to see what happens in the next two to three years. You know, when, when we started collecting this date, well, when we started posting this, uh, Liz Delia, who is our chair, um, proposed this, um, to Jill McNiff and I, and I, I said, sure, I'll, I'll do it. And I don't think I expected it to be as big. Um, and then all of a sudden people got really excited about it. And then it just happened to be a year where just so many jobs, um, but I think it'll be interesting to see what happens in the next two to three years. Four yeah, years. we're we're going through a correction. Like it's probably going to be at least two years before I think we see a recovery on that. But that's also just a pure speculation on my part. Oh, I have one more announcement um, because she said I could finally tell people uh, is the there was a lecture position open at East Tennessee State. Um, I did not publicize it, uh, because we were, we were hoping to get somebody local. So if you were like, wait a second, you didn't tweet about that. Uh, it's because I I wasn't, we weren't looking for a national search. Um, but we hired, um, and she was an athletics academic advisor, um, who's been an adjunct with us, uh, with us, Nikki Stewart, um, fantastic human being. And I've been holding onto this information for four months. Um, and I finally get to publicly tell people um, that we get to add somebody to our team. So there's, there's one. There's, I have two out of 100. Um, I mean, I guess I'll add into your Texas-Illinois complex, but I know they're higher over there. It's just not a sport manager person because they did have a sport 
management opening, but they ended up hiring someone that was more event management focused. But I've been told it's Mickey Hiro Sato. I don't know that person. Um, I don't know even know if they go to any of our conferences or have any affiliation with sport management. I'm definitely talking out of school. I just know the name. So um, is there any other big jobs that we miss that are on there? The... Do you know who went to University of North Texas or Temple? I don't know if North Texas. Yeah, I don't know what North Texas did with theirs because they have like a, two different sport management programs. Uh, like one's in the business school, one isn't. So mm -hmm. I'm not, I definitely don't know who went there and I don't know who got the Temple job. Maybe I did and I've completely blank, but I don't. Yeah, those, that's what I noticed are the, um, uh, or maybe Syracuse as well, looking at, or Minnesota. Yeah, see, the Minnesota one is I, I don't think I know who got that, and that's one that I've been intrigued with because it was obviously a big job, but yeah. yeah. It's, uh, I think because we're a younger field, it'll be interesting to see, um, who retires, you know, I mean, some of these people have been at their universities for, you know, since the creation of their sport management program. Um, and it, it's can't be that many years away from some of these um, pretty prominent names um, that are going to, they're going to retire from these big schools, you know, they build these great reputations. Um, I think that that'll be interesting to see in the next couple of years. Yeah, for sure. All right. Well, Natalie, thanks for joining us. I know this one went long, but I think I could talk to you every day for about two hours and that wouldn't bother me in the slightest, but I think that would bother both of our productivities and probably our spouses. That, that is very true. No, this is fantastic. I love talking about uh, creativity. So, and I love talking about, you know, job rumors. So um, <laughs> I, I've really enjoyed it. Thank you for having me. Yeah, no problem. But thanks everyone for joining us here for this episode of Stays for Management. We'll probably be kicking off um, any next episodes will be starting in the fall semester. So feel free to relax. If you got any good ideas for a topic, feel free to shoot them my way and then we will definitely explore them. Thanks.